Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate, also known as Bra Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we'll be chatting again about gut health, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective. We've kind of gone in the past two weeks, and now we're going to look at how minding your gut health can improve your emotional balance. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to give you guys some background you need to know about the gut. And later, we will chat with Dr. Asia Mohammed, a naturopath who specializes in gut health and treating patients with chronic gastrointestinal conditions. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. Shout out to listeners in Uganda, Mozambique, South Africa, the UK, France, Germany, Canada, Poland, and of course, the USA. I appreciate you all. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and please rate the show on Apple Podcasts and write a review. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. I hope all of you are minding your business and drinking your water, as I am doing too. Today, I want to chat about the gut again, but from the angle of our emotions. To do this, we're going to chat a bit about the enteric nervous system or the second brain. The enteric nervous system or ENS has a hundred million neurons, which is actually less in the brain and more than the spine. And it's connected directly to the brain via the vagus nerve. We talked about this a little bit in, in the last two gut episodes. It's because of this that we have an ongoing two-way communication where our brain talks to our gut and our gut talks to our brain. But that two-way communication is actually not equal. 90% of the communication runs from the gut to the brain and the remaining 10% from the brain to the gut. So this literally means that as our behavior changes, our brain sends a message to our gut bacteria, which increases low-grade inflammation and GI distress. And because it goes both ways, if we have dysbiosis or bacterial overgrowth, this easily leads to changes in our behavior. The point of breaking this down is so that you know that your actions and your emotional state can be controlled by the state of your gut health. I've worked with a great deal of clients with mental disabilities and mental illnesses from depression and anxiety all the way to bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. What I noticed and what has been confirmed through research is that there are a high number of people with mental health issues who also have digestive issues. 70 to 90% of people who have IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, also experience some sort of mood or anxiety disorder, including schizophrenia, depression, and panic disorders. It's also estimated that two-thirds of adults and children on the autistic spectrum have GI dysfunction. The vagus nerve, which is that great gut-brain connector, is important for the roles and functions it plays in digestion, such as releasing digestive enzymes, it slows the movement of food out of the stomach, it coordinates the motility or the movement of the intestines, it decreases inflammation and intestinal permeability, which is basically the ability for things to go in and out of the gut, and it enhances our satiety or feeling of fullness. It also regulates homeostasis, our heart rate, breathing, and enhances our mood. 
as we talked about before, the gut actually makes more neurotransmitters such as feel-good serotonin than our brain. Our gut actually makes 90% of our serotonin. The vagus nerve is also most important for us turning on our parasympathetic nervous system or rest and digest mode. When we are stressed out, our sympathetic nervous system is turned on and we're in fight or flight mode. If you pay attention the next time you're in this state, you'll notice that your digestion will not be great or can halt altogether. This differs when we're relaxed and digestion works easily. One of my favorite simple interventions for clients to stimulate the vagus nerve is for them to start taking hot to cold showers. I talked about this before on the podcast in the context of getting out of your comfort zone, but it also works to help you chill out a bit more and activate your parasympathetic nervous system. If you can handle it, an extremely cold 60 to 90 second burst during your morning shower would not only energize you, but put your body into healing mode. And if you do it now, even in the colder months, you'll find that your resilience to the cold outside improves and you'll get sick less often. And of course, We can always do all of the things that we know we should be doing, like our mindfulness exercises, daily stress management, all of those things. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll speak to our guest for today. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of therawgirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. Today's guest, Asia Muhammad, values the power of lifestyle modifications to achieve optimal health. She uses evidence-based medicine to provide individualized care to each patient. As a naturopathic doctor, she's able to provide care in the realm of nutrition, exercise recommendations, supplementation, botanical medicine, and mind-body therapies. She has a special interest in gastroenterology, mind-body medicine, and stress management as increasing research demonstrates the role of stress in disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Muhammad, for joining me. So can we start with what made you decide to become a naturopath? I feel like it's a very specific thing. I always love to hear how people ended up doing what they're doing. I um, got into this profession. I was originally on track to go to a conventional medical school. So that's like an MD or DO program. And I grew up in a house where my mother never used medication. And she always had this saying where if we had a headache or cramps or something, she'd say, your body's trying to tell you something. So figure it out. Um, And so that was the mentality in my household. And I always wanted to be more holistic and natural in my approach with medicine. I just did not know that naturopathic medicine existed until um, this year in college where I got sick, some like upper respiratory infection. And I went and found this book that my mom had. And the lady on the, on the book, her title was ND, and I'd never seen that. So I Googled it 
And I just had this moment where I said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. And everything kind of clicked. So that's how I found the profession. And I applied and got into the school. Mm -hmm. Um, And then afterwards, I did a residency in GI. Um, And so, yeah, that's kind of the short, condensed version of, of my path. That's awesome. And I saw that you did the residency in GI and I thought it was really interesting because you worked with gastroenterologists, correct? Yep. I did a three-year residency with two gastroenterologists. And so I saw like every, every GI case you could imagine from bloating to cancer. And then I we also saw liver cases too. So a lot of mm-hmm. the time I see hepatology cases as well. So um, yeah. I would love to, because you had that experience, I'm very curious because And I think I've seen you post about, (laughs) I've seen you also post about, you know, some of the beef that happens between MDs and alternative health practitioners. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is really real. Mm -hmm. But I really do believe that they can coexist. And so I think that your experience is very interesting. Can you tell me, I guess, from your perspective, how you think the two can work together? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you look at most like disease in America and what Americans are dying from, it's heart disease and chronic disease. And so, you know, like conventional medicine has, for the most part, failed healthcare, and that we mostly palliate people's symptoms by giving them medication and they still die of the same disease they're being treated for. Exactly. So for me, I think that integration comes like where, you know, medication is necessary if somebody is in that space where you're not going to be able to immediately have the relief you need with just adding diet or supplements. You're going to need some, you know, insulin to get your numbers to a stable space. You're going to need blood pressure meds because your numbers are way too high. And then you can transition or like, or bridge it with a natural protocol to bridge off of the medication. But um, I think that medicine should be completely integrated. I don't think that anybody should only have the option of medication and not even the option to see, say, a holistic practitioner that can offer them other tools for their toolbox. I love that. And I've said that many times to people where I really do believe that medication should be used to stabilize people mm-hmm. and that there should be responsible plans to wean them off. Exactly. And I feel like that's what's missing right now. There are no responsible plans. <laughs> exactly. Most people that I see like come to me. I had a guy last week who takes five blood pressure medications. Jesus. His pressure is still high. You know, exactly. Exactly. It's ridiculous. And the doctors are just like, oh, well, let's tweak the dose of this or tweak the dose of that. Like not a single time has a doctor said, oh, well, try this or try that. And he's trying things with his diet, but it's just no, there's no real guidance. So they find naturopathic doctors or other health practitioners to say, hey, what, how should I be eating? What should I be doing? Is there something else to add on? And that's where I think, you know, the naturopathic piece comes into play. I also think that you can just see naturopathic medicine kind of like as you're growing, aging the whole process, because the goal is to keep you in the healthiest space as possible. So you're not needing to be on medications or be in the space where you'll need them. So I think that from a very early age, people should have a naturopathic doctor in their corner. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think there's room for all kinds of alternative health professionals. Mm -hmm. And I, and I like the philosophy of like mixing the two. I don't Mm -hmm. think that anyone is unnecessary, honestly. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about, can you just give us an overview for people who don't know, and they, you know, probably have read a lot of things on Google's, what is the microbiome? And why should we be concerned with the microbiome? So the microbiome really speaks to, um, it, well, you have many different microbiomes in the body, right? So the largest one is the intestinal microbiome, where you have 
the bulk of bacteria. Um, and so if you look at it from a numbers perspective, we are mostly bacterial organisms, right? We have more bacteria than we have body cells. Um, and most of that bacteria is in our gut. And we have a microbiome in our lungs. We have a vaginal microbiome. We have an oral microbiome. There are many different microbiomes or just areas of bacteria. And um, the gut is extremely important because um, the, the um, bacteria in the gut produces their own, like, sorry, inflammatory markers and inflammatory anti-inflammatory, inflammatory chemicals, depending on what type of bacteria is there. So if you have a higher abundance of specific bacteria relative to foods you're eating, sugars in the diet, those bacteria will produce their own toxins or chemicals. There's one bacteria that actually can deplete glutathione, which is an antioxidant you need, and the bacteria grows in a high sugar environment. So, you know, diet relates to microbiome, which relates to kind of chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And, and what are some of the major threats to um or what are some of the major things we need to be cautious of when it comes to like maintaining a healthy microbiome? I would say obviously like killing off the back, the microbiome would be something to be mindful of. And like one of the main ways that that happens is like antibiotics, medications, um, that alter the gut microbiome. And it can take years for the microbiome to regain its original composition. Um, also diet plays a huge role. Um, like specific foods, eating plant-rich foods will help to proliferate the good bacteria and produce butyrate, which your colon cells need for healthy function um, and also help with immune function as well because the majority of our immune system is actually in our gut and it's you know there through these specialized immune cells. But when people, when we say our immune system is in our gut, it's actually true. Yeah, no, I love that. And I think a lot of people started to get hip a little bit when the Rona was <laughs> started, mm-hmm. but not really because a lot of people were still kind of like, well, let me get, just take this supplement to get my, my immunity up real quick. And it's like, it doesn't work like that. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, okay. So antibiotics, you talked a little bit about how, cause antibiotics are definitely given like candy a lot of times by MDs, like people go there for any sort of infection or any kind of problem. And they're sometimes they're not even infections and they're given antibiotics. Yep, exactly. So how do we know when to take antibiotics, when to not take antibiotics and what's the proper way to actually take antibiotics in a way that's not going to destroy our microbiome? So in regards to when to take them, when not to take them, I think that's a question of relativity, right? So for example, when I was in like residency or or working with the GIs, I had cases of like diverticulitis, right? Mm -hmm. So people have diverticulosis, which is just the pockets in the, in the large intestine. Diverticulitis is when the pockets get infected. Now, when it comes to diverticulitis, there is a risk for abscess if the, Mm -hmm. not treated. But the thing is you can have diverticulitis and actually be able to um, get past it without antibiotics. So it's case by case, or you can have diverticulitis that require antibiotics. So it has really to do with other symptoms. So if somebody has presenting with fever and other kind of symptoms that make you think, okay, let's nip this in the bud. But I've seen doctors, GI doctors say, okay, it's just a diverticulitis attack, go on a low fiber diet, you know, do flush some fluids, you should be fine in a few days. And I've seen other GIs say, I'm going to give you a short course of Cipro and Flagyl. So, you know, mm-hmm. let's do it that way. So I think it's just relative to the doctor. Honestly, um, you would think that most doctors follow the same protocol or studies, but honestly, and, and even in conventional medicine, you can go to 
three different GI doctors and get three different protocols for abdominal hmm. pain, right? So people think, oh, it's a standard of care. And that's not necessarily true. And I've seen people have abdominal pain. They come to see us and the GIs give them, I don't know, like antispasmodics. They see another GI. They're like, oh, let's do a colonoscopy. They see another GI and they're like, oh, I think it could be this here. Here's wow. So that happens too. And people sometimes think that if you see an MD, you're going to get the same thing from each MD. That's not true. Um, hmm. And so I would say with regard to antibiotic, it really just depends on what doctor you're seeing, what the condition is, um, and what the doctor is thinking is going on. But um, I would say when you are being prescribed an antibiotic, you know, you should always ask, like, is, do I just absolutely need to take this? Is there a chance that I can avoid the antibiotic? Is there a point at which I should take the antibiotic? Say, if I'm not having a fever with this, you know, or not having these other issues, can I avoid it? Or once you, you know, start noticing a fever, go ahead and start taking your antibiotic. So you have to ask those types of questions. Yeah. Um, and then if you have to take antibiotics, which they're, they're necessary sometimes, you would mm-hmm. absolutely be mindful of the dose because the dose, the duration, um, and the frequency all matter in terms of the effects on your microbiome. So I would say, obviously, you're looking for the lower dose. You're looking for the lower, the, the shortest duration. So versus like a one week versus a two week prescription or a few mm-hmm. days versus a two week. And um, I remember seeing cases of people who had um, like gastroenteritis or uh, like GI bug, like stool bugs, and their doctors are prescribing antibiotics. And there's absolutely no point because it will resolve on its own. Um, yeah. So you, you see those cases. And if you have to do antibiotics, you take, usually I have people take probiotics, like um, to dose them after their antibiotic, because obviously mm-hmm. dose them before the antibiotic is just going to wipe it out. So I just have them dose it after um, probiotics, I mean, after antibiotics. Yeah, and that's one thing that I commonly don't hear my clients saying like, oh, they gave me an antibiotic and they told me about probiotics. That never happens. No. Um, I've had clients who have were put on antibiotics for months and no one even oh, wow. discussed. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So I think the probiotic thing is a really great point afterwards. While we're on the subject of probiotics, I'd love to get your take on it. What types of products do you like? Do you actually believe that they are effective? Because there are different people in different camps. And so I'm curious as to your perspective. Yeah, um, I I like probiotics. I use them often. Um, and I say I use them often because there's not much evidence that speaks to any like long-term danger with using probiotics, right? You have like these really, really small studies showing one case of somebody who used an, an I'm sorry, probiotic. I'm so sorry, not antibiotic, probiotic. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these like small studies of people who have used a probiotic with some strange adverse effects. So that, I mean, that happens with, with whatever you're putting into your body, you can have some strange effect from. Um, mm-hmm. I often use probiotics. I see a lot of chronic cases um, and, those are cases where people have like autoimmune disease or like chronic mm. disease. And I don't need, you know, there are so many studies and so much research to support the role of bacteria in the guts of these patients and how just having different microbiomes actually cause or portends worse outcomes for these, these populations. So I'm okay with using probiotics. I typically though try to create like a plant rich diet for people so that they don't have to be on them forever. So I will tell patients like, okay, we're going to just do this for four weeks after you finish. Like our goal is that your, your bacteria will be able to repopulate based on what you're feeding yourself, not having to keep taking probiotics. So yeah, I mean, I find them useful. I use them for autoimmune cases. I use them for 
like um like I see like uh, like uh, dis like vaginal dysbiosis cases like chronic like yeast infection stuff like that like I will use probiotics I use different types of probiotics they're actually one probiotic that's been studied to increase the amount of IgA in the immune system so I use that of course for for all of my um autoimmune cases and just chronic disease cases and leaky gut cases. So I don't use them really in like SIBO cases, but yeah, I mean, I I love probiotics. I don't have any problem using them. Okay. That's so interesting. Yeah. I think when I was nerding out one day, I was listening to Dr. Terry Gillums, who's, he wrote the book, Dietary Supplements. And he, you know, he's someone who nerds out on supplements all the time. And he was kind of like, eh, (laughs) he was like, eh, about probiotics. I thought that was so interesting, but he wasn't necessarily anti-probiotic though. You know what I mean? It was just more so, you know, it doesn't necessarily, like he doesn't necessarily feel one way or the other strongly. Yeah. um, And that there wasn't enough uh, research to really say that spore probiotics were actually doing like, you know what I mean? Better than any right. other standard probiotic. I think right. that was his, those were his main points. And then I'm just I'm also really big on the fermented foods because right. once you get, you can definitely use. I like using those probiotics when people have candida and other things as well. But but then you can get those fermented foods in there and like you said, focus on the diet so that the body's actually producing the bacteria we need. So I like that. Exactly. Um, very cool. Um, can you talk a little bit about, since you see so many, I mean, you see so many uh, people who have gut issues. Can you talk a little bit about what happens with the gut brain axis and some of the emotional ramifications of having an imbalanced gut? Yeah. I mean, there's an, there's a ton of like research and literature elucidating the kind of mind gut connection and what you find across like mood disorders, such as anxiety, depression, there's not a lot of research around schizophrenia, which is something that I am interested in. But um, when you look at mood disorders and, you know, microbiome studies, there's interesting correlations with specific bacterial populations. Um, I, you know, obviously we all know, well, I mean, we don't all know, but there's a huge like mind gut connection, the vagus nerve, right? That's like the huge nerve connection from gut. And, you know, I find that a lot of patients who have anxiety, depression, because a lot of like gut cases also come with like mood disorder as well. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. A lot of those cases, I find that when I put them on like gut building protocols, not necessarily probiotics, but just gut building protocols, that they do find um, improvements, slight improvements in their like mood or depression, um, anxiety. So that's interesting. There are interesting studies around antibiotic use and depression. And there's this one study I found Hmm. And they said that, you know, there's a number at which um, antibiotics are definitely correlated with depression. And they said that if you use, I think it was like six or more antibiotics over the course of your life, you are have the highest risk category for depression, like developing depression. Wow. Yeah. So it's really interesting to see that. And I forget, like they had like different scoring at different amounts. So like if you use one antibiotic, this is like your risk. If you use like two or three over the course of your life, this is your risk. If you use like more than six, like you kind of are like in the like the highest risk group for um, depression association relative to antibiotic use. So it was really interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. 
I mean, it it makes sense. It does. I mean, if, if you're constantly disrupting your gut flora, you're de- you're you're yeah. bound to have some mood issues. Yeah, yeah, total make makes total sense. And um, and a lot of times you see online like, oh, your serotonin, these hormones, these these neurotransmitters are made in your gut, and so forth. So mm-hmm. huge brain gut connection. Um, and I remember when I worked with the GI, they'd always say like, if I was smart, I would have had a dual degree in psychiatry because <laughs> a lot of these cases. No, seriously. No, seriously. And and it really should be. I mean, but I think that's why holistic medicine matters. Why? Because we can put together the actual signs and symptoms from different parts of that patient, not just focusing on, oh, I'm just staring at your gut. But it's like, I also noticed that you're super anxious. Right. Um, right. And, you know, Chinese medicine is impeccable at doing this, kind of like looking at a constellation of symptoms and being like, okay, all of these things point to these imbalances, you know? Right. Um, right. I love Chinese medicine. Yeah, me too. Can we talk about the drama around leaky gut a little bit? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like there's just general drama. Why? (laughs) Because there's, you know, all these MDs and different people are just like, it does not even exist. You know what I mean? Same thing about SIBO, right? And now they're like, oh, SIBO's (laughs) a real thing. Like... <laughs> My bad. Sebo is actually real. They're like, when I was in residency, and one of the, one of the GIs, he was like, guy, he'd say, "Listen, he's like, listen, Doctor Muhammad, we just don't know what any of this stuff means. Like, I'm gonna just be honest with you, this stuff is too advanced for us. We don't know what this means. So, I'm not saying it's not real. I'm just saying I don't really care to get to to know, understand it. I didn't. He was like, went to school like years ago. He's like, I'm not interested in any of this, like these specialized tests or what any of this stuff means. And he didn't have to be interested because they have a standard of care that they're held to. So he's not obligated to learn this new information. To be honest with you, so um, I, I get it. But yeah, leaky gut is like like a Real Housewives show. You know, it's like so dramatic. <laughs> I legit like love talking about leaky gut because there's not any gold standard. There's no like solid consensus to say, yeah. like, you know, if you do this breath test, like H. pylori breath test, or if you do this stool test, this is definitive for diagnosing leaky gut. I mean, there's a lot of like misunderstanding around what leaky gut actually is. And people will say like, well, your gut is just naturally leaky. And it's normally leaky. And it's like, that's, that's not really true though. You know, like our gut is highly specialized to allow be coming across to come across. Right. So it's not naturally leaky. It's a gut mm-hmm. permeable organ. It's supposed to be permeable, but it's not supposed to be leaky. I guess in my mind, leaky is on the higher end of the spectrum of disorder, not normal. Right. Right. I guess it's relative to how you see the word leaky, but for me, leaky means there's an issue versus permeable, but um, I guess for leaky gut, I say is increased intestinal permeability. And yeah. look at the intestinal um, tract, the small intestine, large intestine, like you have three distinct layers. You have the mucus layer, which is thinner in the small intestine, thicker in the large intestine. You have the epithelial layer, the cellular layer, and then you have the lamina propria, which is beneath that. So you have these three distinct layers that make up the gut. You mm-hmm. have, you have, I think of leaky gut in those three stages. So I think, okay, mucus degradation. Um, I think of like degradation in the cell integrity. So that's where you have the tight junctions and the desmosomes and the adherence, all the things that bind the cells together. And then you have the lamina propria, which is right underneath it, which is where all those immune cells lie, basically waiting just in case something comes across that shouldn't to kind of arrest it. So, um, you know, when you think of leaky gut, you think of, okay, aberrations in the mucosal, um, lining of the gut 
is it thinner than it should be? What causes the mucosal lining to be thinner than it should be? You downregulate those mucin g- proteins and those mucin genes. You think about the epithelial cell layer and what triggers zonulin and um, the, mm-hmm. the, the tight junctions to be disrupted. We know that you know um, bacteria can trigger. We know that, for example, gluten can be a trigger. Gliadin can mm-hmm. be a trigger in celiac and non-celiac patients. And then lamin appropriate, which is kind of like more like the security system, like kind of regulating things. But we know that in the mucus layer, IgA is where you you find a lot of IgA in that mucus layer, right? So that's like the initial security system. Like, hey, what is this trying to get across? It's like screening it. So when you are somebody that has like um, autoimmune disease, autoimmune, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like one that I've seen recently. I have like a rheumatoid arthritis case that I saw recently. Mm-hmm. And um, like for these kinds of patients, like I always like put together some kind of gut focusing protocol. But, you know, when you when you look at these cases, I always like my goal is like, okay, how do we support mucus layer? How do we support epithelial cell layer? And a lot of that doesn't necessarily mean adding supplements. It could be like, hey, we're going to do an avoidance of this food for X yep. time. We're going right. to, and you know, these foods we're going to add in, I don't know, like, I will add in a specific probiotic to help with increasing IgA because that's the only one I've actually seen in the literature that actually will increase it just to make sure the immune system there or the, the gut profile is actually able to screen what it needs to screen and not have it get across the layers of the gut before it actually goes and wreaks havoc in the system. Um, but that's how I think of leaky gut. Like there's not a solid consensus as to like what it is. And that's not a gold standard test for, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's a lactulose mannitol test, but that's like, a lot of doctors don't even believe in that. Don't use it because it's not reliable and the results aren't reproducible. And then you have like a food allergy test where they'll say like, oh, if you have more than 15 foods, it's considered leaky gut because you shouldn't be having right. it. What I think is funny about it is that I really actually think, you know, I I just feel like, it's one of those things where you can focus more on the person in front of you and the symptoms they're actually exhibiting. Mm-hmm. And I think that that kind of nuance does not happen enough in traditional doctor's offices. And so therefore it's just like dismiss it entirely instead of being like, Hey, what's going on here? Do they have eczema, psoriasis? Do they have all these other issues that, that you might show that there's something going on that needs to be paid attention to with their gut? I did think it was really interesting, though, that you were talking about how someone you spoke to who said that they didn't even have the desire to understand it or look at the tests. And I find that really interesting because I find that that kind of sentiment seems to be underlying, I guess, the lack of interest in even checking it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and and I I don't know, I have a personal problem with that, but I'm a lifelong learner. And I also don't think that your degree or your credentials should preclude you from actually caring about finding the best solution for the patient. Right. So that's where they lose me. I'm like, oh, okay, you don't even care then. <laughs> okay. yeah. Well, this is the thing, like they... They don't care. Like not all of them are like that, but most of them are like that. That's been my experience. So you have to understand like in this GI practice I was in, it was like a kind of like a corporation, right? There was like just a gastroenterology corporation in Arizona. And I say corporation because they have many different offices across the entire state. And this is just I worked in, but I was the only naturopathic doctor in the entire corporation, right? So it was just basically all other, they were only MDs. And so you have to understand when I would go to meetings with these doctors, 
they would be like, why are you working in our, <laughs> like, why are you here? <laughs> oh my God. And they were so condescending to me. They just thought that I was not this real doctor and like, oh, we have to explain things to her because she doesn't get it. And I actually know what I know what I'm talking about. And so, you know, I had to deal with that. So a lot of that mentality has to do with like the arrogance that comes with having a degree, you know what I mean? Or having, yeah. a, it's like, I don't have to learn this or this is beneath me kind of thing. And I'm yeah. this way and we have all of this money behind all of our associations and they can pay for these fancy dinners and, and whatever. And so I think that it has a lot to do with like this hubris and they say the hubris of youth, but I don't think that it's of youth. I just think that's like the hubris of like education or knowledge that people is, like are blinded by. And even the other doctor who was like the one that brought me on to their practice, you know, she often just say, listen, I don't, I don't know. Go see Dr. Muhammad. I remember patients would say, I would hear them in the room saying, Hey, like, what can I do with my diet? Like, I know this is an inflammatory disease. What can I do with my diet? I would literally hear her say like, listen, there's nothing you can do with your diet. Okay. Like there's nothing you can do. Just need to take the medication. This has nothing to do with your diet. Your diet didn't cause this. This is not about your diet. <laughs> Dr. Muhammad. And they, she would come out of the room and say, go see this patient. She wants to know about diet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, what so that's the mentality and it's like they you have to also think about their training they're not trained in school to take diet into consideration it's really oh here's an ailment here's a pill if they this doesn't solve it send them to a dietitian you know you don't have to yeah Yeah, no interesting I had similar experiences because I started my career working with physicians so Mm -hmm. I totally empathize (laughs) yeah totally empathize it's really (laughs) really fascinating well thank you so much I think this has been great um, where can people find you online? So right now I just have like my social media. So I do Instagram. Um, it's just doctor.asiamohammed. And then my website is www.asiamohammed.com. Um, that, that's about it. And also I, my sister and I have a docuseries on Amazon prime called the art of natural healing. Um, that we would appreciate if anybody, if you could go and just watch an episode and give us a nice review. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, it's time to take some questions from Instagram or email. Remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM. Slide up in my DMs, respond to the call for questions on my profile at The Raw Girl, or contact me via my website at therawgirl.com. Today's question is from Danielle via Instagram, who says, Dear Raw Girl, I've read your past articles and other information online that leads me to believe I have internal parasites. Can parasitic infection affect your emotions? I have mood swings too. Thank you. Hi, Danielle. So sorry that you think you have the buggers. Child, that is not fun. I have been there. The first thing that you want to do to save money and time is to get tested to see if you indeed have parasites so that you can embark on the right treatment plan. For that, you need to find a holistic practitioner who can order a stool test for you. I've used one from Genova and also the Parasitology Center and their website is parasitetesting.com. I prefer though PCR testing, which is what Genova does. Parasitetesting.com also has really awesome herbal cleanses, but test first to see what's really going on in there. 
The short answer is absolutely. Parasitic infection can definitely affect your mood for all the reasons we discussed in this episode. Our behaviors and our emotions are affected by any gut imbalance. With parasitic infection and also with candida infections, often people are craving foods to keep the critters alive. And these are usually high sugar foods. And as you probably well know, balanced blood sugar levels are also extremely important for a balanced mood throughout the day. So the types of foods that you're eating or craving can also add to the mood imbalance that you may be feeling. As a woman, you also want to watch how your diet is affecting your menstrual cycle and PMS. And if you haven't listened to that yet, go back and listen to my past episode on PMS for more clues on this. Once you can identify the parasites you have, as there are many different types, and also get on a food and supplement program to cleanse, I am sure you will feel 1000% better. I really hope that helps you. All right, it is time to close out the show. Hopefully uh, today's episodes and the past maybe three episodes we've done on gut health have really given you some insightful information into the digestive system and also some things to look out for to ensure your gut health is optimal. Today, I leave you with this quote by an unknown author. I've got 99 problems, but healing my gut solved 89 of them. (laughs) Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. For more on the show or to listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. Mm-hmm.